you would remain standing while we read tonight's scripture. It comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Glenn. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Disciples Church. How was everybody's Thanksgiving besides odd? Good, good, I'm glad. Uh, we are incredibly glad that you have joined us today in worship. Uh, my name is Dave Hahn, and it is my privilege today to be able to open God's Word with and for you. So about 30 years ago, there was a big craze which began in the modern business world. Mac Anderson came up with an idea to create a series of posters. And these posters featured three things. It was a very broad theme, a very pretty picture, and a pithy, potentially inspirational quote beneath. Themes like teamwork, success, responsibility. Who knows what I'm talking about? Who's seen those posters before? Yeah. So as always happens, when something is popular, somebody else found a way to hone in on Mac's success. 
Not long after the popularity of his inspirational posters, a collection of new posters was created that followed the same idea and the same kind of design. But the message was very different. One was called motivation, and it said, if a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind robots will be doing soon. My favorite one, I still have to buy it, features a picture of a huge ship. Half sunken underwater, this ship is sitting in the water, and the phrase underneath it, the big phrase, a big idea is mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> Portions of my life resemble and resonate with that particular poster, which is why I would want to get it. So similarly, in today's passage, we are given an opportunity, like that ship, to learn from the grave mistake of another and to heed the warning to not do as he did. So throughout the book of Mark, we often see Jesus turn people's understanding of God and his kingdom on its head by rebuking the learned and the self-exalted and exalting the simple and the forgotten. In Mark 10, we see Jesus encounter some parents and their children, as Glenn read, as well as who was referred to as the rich young ruler. One serves as an example of what one must do to enter the kingdom of God, and the other serves as an example of what one must not do. It was just two weeks ago, if you were here, that we witnessed five couples symbolically bring their children before God through child dedication and ask God to touch their child, to bless their child, and to save their child as they seek to raise their child in the love and the knowledge of Him. And in doing so, these five couples showed a similar heart and a similar mind to those that we read about here in verse 13. Verse 13 again reads, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. So a few weeks back, we looked at Mark 9, where Jesus used a child again to illustrate three big things. First, the kind of person who enters the kingdom of heaven. Second, how we are to relate to God. And thirdly, how we are to receive one another. Here in verses 13 through 16, we certainly see something similar, but this time the disciples rebuked the crowd for bringing their children to Jesus, and Jesus became indignant. The word for indignant is a Greek word used here, and it's only used seven other times in Scripture, and it is only in this occasion that Jesus is the subject. In the other six cases, it is Jesus who brings indignancy out in others. The Greek word could also be translated as grieved, angry, irate. This is an emotion that we rarely see in Jesus, and so we need to pay attention and look at why Jesus felt this way. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus was indignant because his disciples were shooing away the very ones he came for. Children at this time and place were seen as possessions, as laborers, as future caretakers, and as carriers of the family name. They were to be seen and not heard, and they certainly were not supposed to bother teachers. But that is not how Jesus saw children. Jesus magnified them at every opportunity, and he loved them very deeply. And as we have mentioned, it wasn't really physical children that Jesus made much of. It was really what it was that they represented. It isn't a certain age demographic that Jesus loves, thank God. Rather, it is a person's heart and what lies within them, and that is what he loves about children. Because children trust Children depend, and they don't refuse good things due to their own self-sufficiency. Instead, they are keenly aware that they possess nothing. And apart from what they are given, they generally receive all of those good things with gladness. So here's some good news for most of us. A person is never too old to have the heart and the faith of a child. A person is never too old to have the heart and the faith of a child, regardless of what your body tells you. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus lays out two commands. One of them is explicit and easy to see. The other one is somewhat implicit. First, and this is the explicit one, let the little children come to me, and then, somewhat implicitly, follow their lead. Follow their lead. Friends, we should talk about Jesus and point people to Jesus and put the kindling of the gospel around the minds and the hearts of everyone that we encounter, young or old, looking for childlike faith. And as we do, we trust in him, we depend on him, and we receive good things from him, just as a child does with his or her parents. Recognizing that we cannot earn what Jesus died to freely give us any more than a child has earned the love or the gifts that their parents give to them. Kids, you were loved when you lived inside mom. You hadn't done anything to earn that love. That's what it means to have childlike faith. And it is necessary, necessary for all those who wish to enter the kingdom of God. The more independent and self-reliant and entitled we become, and grown-ups do tend to do that, the less likely it is that we will even want to enter the kingdom of God. Which leads us to the story in verses 17 through 25. 
Let's first look at verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Running up to Jesus, kneeling before Jesus, and calling Jesus good teacher. This is quite an entrance. And it was incredibly unusual. Because Jewish men of status, rich rulers and the like, didn't run. They didn't run. It was undignified. More than that, Jesus was not very well thought of by the religious leaders of the day, the very group of men that this ruler was likely affiliated with. And here he was kneeling before him. Perhaps most notably, Jewish men did not use the word good as liberally as we use it today. They didn't use the word good the way that we use it today. We'll talk more on that in a minute. Either way, without question, this man was eager and he was humble and he was respectful and he had a deep need, a burning question in his mind. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In spite of all that he was socially, economically, from a status standpoint, and in spite of all that he had, this man knew that he was lacking. Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus, in a broad sense, as I think most of us know, would have been considered a teacher or a rabbi, so that wouldn't have been unusual. Jesus being called a teacher would have certainly made sense, but the adjective good put in front of teacher would have been somewhat unusual. No other rabbi would have been addressed as good teacher, and here's why. The word good implied sinlessness. Do you remember when Jesus cast the demon out of the demon-possessed man? And people said about him, come and see this man and everything that he does is good. Good wasn't a subjective word in Jesus' day the way that it is now. Good was a God word. Good was a God word. And it was used only when speaking of the works or the person of God himself. So why then did Jesus reply as he did? Was he denying that he was God? Was he denying his deity? No. Jesus was saying to this man, by calling me good, you're calling me God. Are you really willing to do that? Are you really willing to do that? This idea is so huge, both for this rich young ruler and for you and me, and here's why. Jesus asked his disciples, just as he asks you and I and everyone else, who do you say that I am? And if we answer as Peter did, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, there are implications with such a confession. Because if Jesus is God, then we are not. If Jesus is God, then we need to listen to him and obey him and worship him. 
Friends, we have to count the cost of the confessions we make and the decisions that we make before we make them. Jesus is fairly well thought of in most circles, believers or non-believers. But that may be because his true identity and his true purpose have been misunderstood at best. At worst, it may be that his identity and his purpose have been stolen from him. A famous quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, addresses this idea incredibly brilliantly. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Yes, Jesus was a good man. Yes, Jesus was a great teacher. But stopping there strips Jesus of his true nature, his true character, and his deity because Jesus is God. And he will accept no other role in our lives. No other role. And your biggest problems and my biggest problems cannot be solved by the greatest of teachers or the best of men. Lost men need a God who will rescue and who will search. Sinful men need a Savior who will forgive. And dead men need a Lord who imparts life. Friends, there are many who are confused about Jesus' identity, and in doing so, as Lewis rightly claims, they patronize him. But sadly, there are just as many who claim Jesus as God, but live as though he is not. They claim Jesus as God, but they live as though he's not. And they fill the chairs and the pulpits in our churches. God help us. And in doing so, they put themselves in far more danger than refusing to recognize Jesus as God from the outset. So here's my question for you today. One of my questions, I should be fair. Who do you say Jesus is? If he's anything less than God to you, he is of no consequence and should at best be ignored. But if you say he's God, is your life marked by a desire to love him and follow him and obey him? 
Not that you love, follow, and obey him perfectly, but rather, as Jonathan asked last week, is your heart at home in sin? Do you feel comfortable there? Or is your heart troubled? When you sin, this is huge. Do you run to Jesus? Or do you justify your behavior and run from him? Friends, a humble confession and lofty praise like we see with the rich young ruler without a heart willing to surrender to and obey Jesus will not gain anyone entry into the kingdom of God. It's not just about a humble confession and lofty praise. What does your heart say? What does your life say? The confession of our lips must match the desire of our hearts and the outworking of our lives. Not, hear me, not as a prerequisite for salvation, but as evidence of salvation. Kneeling before Jesus, the rich young ruler asked Jesus the one question he needed an answer to. And the way that he phrased the question could get lost on us, but it's critical in really understanding the heart and ultimately Jesus' response to him. And perhaps this question resonates with some of you today. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Give me the rules. Tell me the formula. Show me the grading curve so that I can do enough to get into heaven. You see, religion, by most people's definition, is a set of things that we need to do or not to do in order to gain God's favor. Every world religion, sadly, some Christian denominations would hold to that definition. But Jesus does not. Jesus does not. The Bible does not. Listen to Jesus' conversation in John 6 with the crowd who was following him. Verse 28 of John 6 says, Then they, speaking of the crowd, said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. Are you ready? Here's the answer, right? Ready? That you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. The message of Christianity is that we are saved by grace, no merit of our own, through faith. No other works are required, no other works are accepted. So what can you do? What can we do? What can others do? Believe in Jesus. The grace of God alone faith in Christ alone saves mankind. Nothing else. Look at how Jesus engages this ruler upon his question in verses 19 through 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So why would Jesus have put the law before this man rather than say, as he did in John, the thing that we just read, 
believe in me? Why put the law before him? Because Jesus knew that this man was steeped in self-righteousness. And that though he was kneeling before him, calling him God, his hope was in something else entirely. He would have made the claim, but Jesus knew better. This man, like many of his day, believed that he had kept the law perfectly. And perhaps by man's standards, he did. But by God's standard, only Christ has ever and will ever live a sinless life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus revealed that sin and the breaking of God's law begins at a heart level. And that's ultimately where God looks. He looks upon the heart of men. So we may not have murdered, but we have hated. And God says that that makes us murderers. We may not have committed adultery, but we have lusted. And that makes us adulterers. God's law is perfect, but we are sinful. And as such, God's law acts like a mirror, revealing how filthy we are and how sinful we are and our need for a Savior to clean us and make us new. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Do you know how grateful I am for the first half of verse 21? In his folly, And in his self-righteousness, Jesus loved this man. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Which means that he also loves you and me when we're kneeling before him, saying all kinds of good things about him with hearts that are far from him. Thank God for his compassion and mercy. Kneeling before Jesus is a man who wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him what to do. The rich young man amazingly replies with, done and done, I've done it. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew better. And in his love, And in his mercy, Jesus revealed the truth to this man, and he told him to do the one thing that he wouldn't do. Sell what you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Friends, wrapped up in this command of Jesus is the heart of the law that this very man claimed to keep. The heart of the law is to love God and to love others. And in walking away, this man showed that wealth and possessions was his true God. He didn't want Jesus to be his savior. He wanted Jesus to show him how to be his own savior. He didn't want to love God or love others. 
He wanted to hold on to what he truly valued and what he truly loved, those things above all else. Friends, if we come to Jesus for anything other than Jesus himself, we, like this rich young ruler, will find ourselves disappointed and sad because Jesus is not a cosmic Santa Claus where we sit on his lap and we ask him for what we really want. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. Jesus wasn't born to die and rise again to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise or to potentially fix our earthly problems. And if we come to Jesus expecting those things and he doesn't deliver how we want it, when we want it, we'll walk away and look for it in someone or something else. Just like this man. Because like this man... It wasn't Jesus that we really wanted in the first place. It was what he could give us. But if we come to Jesus because we recognize that he is better than the greatest of possessions or the most difficult trial, we'll never be left. And we'll find our greatest satisfaction in him. Continuing in verse 23, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard the statistic that if you go home at night with change in your pocket, if you've got change on your dresser, money in the bank, anything like that, you are among the top 8% of the world's wealthiest people. If you have a quarter in your pocket and nothing else, you're among the top 8% of the world's wealthiest people. If that is true, And how are we going to (laughs) know? And what Jesus said in these three verses is true. We're all in trouble, right? Maybe. I mean, having money can certainly lead a person to self-dependence, a false sense of security, a lack of desperation, all of those things that stand opposed to the gospel, but money isn't the real problem. Do you know that the verse actually says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil? It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's no extra charge for you. (laughs) So money isn't the real problem. This man's problem was not his possessions. Idolatry was. Our problem is idolatry. And idolatry is forbidden by God. 
It breaks the very first of God's commands. You shall have no other gods before me. Anything or anyone more important to us than God is an idol. Anything or anyone more important to us than God is an idol. Certainly money can be, but so can other good things like work, family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, social causes, morality. Our health and our safety can be idols. So, how would you, think this to yourself, don't shout out the answer, how would you complete this sentence? My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have or how about this sentence? The reason that I am following God is that I want Whoever or whatever finishes those sentences is your true God and has become an idol to you. The rich young man walked away sorrowful because his sentence finished with wealth and possessions. And though his wealth did not satisfy, he was unwilling to give it up for the one who ultimately would. So how does your sentence finish? In these three verses, Jesus was using humor and irony to make a point. He was also using my favorite animal, so I appreciate that. He is saying that idols are like giant camels that we sit on top of. And it's impossible, as we could imagine, to ride even the smallest of camels through the opening the size of a needle's eye. It's impossible to do that. And so it is with the one who worships anything or anyone other than Jesus and expects to enter God's kingdom. It is impossible unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Friends, there is not a believer in this room who was not riding the camel of idolatry when Jesus saved them. We are all atop a camel of some idol heading towards the eye of a needle when Jesus saved us. We all worshiped something other than God, and yet God saved us. Hear me. He saved us. He saved us. We did not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. No one regardless of status, wealth, or deeds, can earn their salvation. It is impossible. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Here's some more good news. There is no one so wicked, so lost, so dead, 
or so idolatrous that God cannot and will not save them. The Apostle Paul was on his way to kill and imprison Christians, riding atop the idols of power, zeal, and control before God knocked him off and transformed his life. The Bible is filled with examples of people who hated God, rebelled against God, and bowed before countless idols when God intervened and rescued them, even the richest of men. Because what is impossible with men is entirely possible with God. Are you ever going to look at a camel the same way again? Finishing up with verses 28 through 31, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now I'm houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In the disciples, as Jesus points out, we find men with childlike faith. Men who walked away from their possessions, families, homes, and everything else for Jesus. Men who did the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. Do you think Peter was looking for some reassurance here. Even if he wasn't, and I think that he was, he got it from Jesus. He's saying to Peter and he's saying to you and I, whatever it is that we lose or give up for God in this life will not be lost forever. But how and when it comes back to us is up to God and it is not up to us. And whatever it is that we may lose or be asked to give up cannot and does not compare to the true treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. And for those who lose their family, Jesus promises a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ, both in this life and in the one to come. For those who lose their homes or their possessions, Jesus promises to provide all that we need in this life, a true eternal home in the life to come, and an inheritance of untold riches of God, our Father, who has created and made and owns all that is seen and unseen. Poll after poll indicates that people, Christians included, believe that man is basically good. And that it is good people who go to heaven. But there are a couple problems with that idea, and the biggest problem is the Bible. It tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us that we were conceived in iniquity, and it tells us that we were born spiritually dead. Another problem, not quite as big, is subjectivity. See, our definition of good varies from person to person, and it changes over time. So if being good 
is our hope for heaven. How do we know if we've been good enough? How do you know? Whose standard are we measured by? That's the problem with subjectivity. But God is not subjective. Meaning, our opinions, our assumptions, or our interpretations of God do not affect what is actually true of Him or of what He has said. Our opinions, assumptions, or interpretations do not matter because God alone is self-defined and God alone is objective in nature. He determines what is good and what is evil. God sets the standard because he alone is good. And in his goodness and his justice and his holiness, God must punish all that is not good. So then how do we know what good looks like? Well, God gave us his law. And according to scripture, to stumble at just one point of the law is to break all of it. And the punishment for even one stumble, one sin, is death. Seems hopeless, doesn't it? Seems impossible. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because God did not just give us his law. He also gave us his son. And God in Christ came to live the only good and perfect life, to die the death that we deserve for our sin, and to grant us life that we could never earn. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is the gospel. And the gospel can only be received, never earned, with childlike faith, not through doing. So beware of the idols and the false gods in your life that promise to fulfill but cannot and will not deliver. Beware of a desire for satisfaction in the here and the now at the expense of total satisfaction in the life to come. Friends, Jesus alone claimed to be and showed himself to be God. There are many who have claimed it, but none have showed it. And upon that claim, his claim to be God, you and I and the whole world are left with two choices. That's it. Worship or walk away. Worship or walk away. To worship means that we sacrifice and we offer all that we are unto him and to him alone. Because God will not just be one more part of your life. He wants to be your life. Some of you are disciples of Jesus Christ and there are probably others of you who are seeking him. You may not identify that way. But no matter where you are on that spectrum, understand this. Jesus wants all of you. Nothing held back. Nothing. 
And while he may not ask you to give up all that you have to follow him, as he did with his disciples and as he did with this rich young ruler, you do need to be willing to do so if he does. He may not ask you to give up everything, but you need to be willing to do so if he does. So ask yourself today, is there anything that I would not give up or walk away from to follow Jesus? Is there anything that I would not give up or walk away from to follow Jesus? Because whatever or whoever it is has become your God and your idol and you need to repent. Away from idolatry and toward Christ. Friends, it is only, only when we fix our eyes on Jesus and his incomparable beauty that everything else which fights for our affections finds its good and right place in our lives, assuming that that thing belongs in our lives at all. Only when we fix our eyes on him. Because God alone is good. And he's looking for lost children. So turn to him. Trust in him. Depend on him with childlike faith. And receive with gladness the good things that he gives those who are his. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to whom else can we go? You alone are good and have the words of eternal life, and still we recognize that our hearts are fickle and that we are prone to wander. Would you reveal to us where we have made idols of the good gifts you have given, where we have worshiped creation over you, our Creator? Give us faith that trusts, depends, and follows after you like a child to his father. And help us to lead the men and women and boys and girls in our life to you through our testimony and to hold fast to the grace and the faith that you have given us in Christ. Above all, would you give us eyes that are fixed upon Jesus and to see him as the most lovely and the most desirable the most satisfying. Cause all else in this world to grow strangely dim when compared to the magnificence of your precious son who came for us, who died for us, and lives in us until he comes again. In Jesus' name, amen.